It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's today's special guest, Elijah Robertson. Uh, Let's read, let's stay standing, in fact, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word today, we will be reading in Psalm chapter uh, 123, and we are skipping, yes, a few of them, Miss Sandy was scheduled to speak today, but uh, needed to be somewhere, so she asked me to swap with her, so in a few weeks you'll have 121, what a precious psalm that is, but today we're going to look at Psalm 123, another psalm of ascent. Let's read that together. I'll be reading in the ESV. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now, since this is only four verses, let's read it one more time and just enjoy this meditation. A song of ascents. This is again Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till He has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are, who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the glorious reality that is revealed in these verses, in this short and simple psalm. And may we join the meditation of those who would have been traveling with the intent, who would be moving with the intent to worship their God. May we join them in embracing the glory and the beauty of the reality that is presented to us in this psalm. I thank you in your precious name, O Lord, to you be all the glory. And when we walk out of here, may we have gloried in you in such a way that we are able to more appropriately, correctly place our confidence and faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and reckon the realities of what He has done and accomplished on our behalf and is to us. Not only in this very moment, but for all eternity. May we reckon those realities afresh. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in a time of 
social constructs and political correctness in Western culture, in our society, in our communities, if one were to look at this psalm and really begin to grasp what it is declaring to us, it really might be hard to want to accept it. It really might be difficult in the, the social constraints, and I'm not going to get into some of the things that I want to, that really want to pop out of my mouth right now and call silly. I'm not going to do that. There's such a pressure in our society that if you were to really look at this at face value and just see what it says, you might have to think twice about how you want to swallow that. But it is the beauty and the glory of the Christian. If I were to title this, I would give it a title, something along the lines of the position of the people of God. Because this psalm doesn't just give us a picture or a quaint illustration, but it gives us a depiction of reality. And no less. Nothing less. And, and maybe for you or maybe someone watching, there might be a difficulty with grabbing the reality of this psalm as utterly beautiful, glorious. But I want to attest to you that when you have seen Jesus, and as we begin to behold him all the more, the claim of reality in this psalm is the beauty of the Christian life. It is utterly glorious and wonderful. So we're going to look at that today. I, will be, I read it in the ESV, but I will be taking, uh, looking at it also in the NAS B as well. This psalm has a very, very simple outline for a very short psalm. When you read it at first, it's kind of like, all right, okay. You know, there's something about, I think many of the psalms of sin, as I was looking at them, they don't have a lot of, like, context. You know, like, I'm, I was reaching, I was wanting, like, come on, show me, like, at least what time period this is in, so I can connect it to something, and then I can really begin to grasp the nuggets and work those things out. There's not a lot of context to work with here. We don't even know when these were written. They are a selection of psalms that were compiled for those who, we don't even know exactly the context, but presumably those who are heading up to worship God or heading into Jerusalem, uh, or maybe uh, the steps in the temple, which is less likely that uh, you would meditate on these. It, but the whole idea is still, as Nathan was talking last week, we're coming into the presence of God to worship God. There's not like a lot of, I want to know like, 
who wrote this? What's going on? What time period is it? Post-exilic? Is it before that? What, what is it? But I think that's, that's part of the, the, the wisdom of God to lead us to eternal reality within this psalm. We're forced to back up and go, all right, what's the bigger picture? What's going on here? So let me run you through a very quick and simple outline to this psalm. The first verse gives us a declaration, just a very clear declaration. The second verse gives us a description of how the declaration is acted out. What does that actually look like? And then we have a plea for God to act. That's the whole psalm. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. The psalmist will declare something, and then he'll describe what that actually looks like, and then we see this wonderful plea for God to act on our behalf. <clears throat> so I want to walk through that with you together. As we do, I want to remind you that everything in this psalm is based on the nature and the reality of God, which we'll see as we walk through it. And then what I want to do is draw our attention to this picture, this description of reality. The position of the people of God. This is non-negotiable, by the way. We may be growing in it. Again, we may have to really reconstruct some things in our mind and just grab it and embrace it. But it's non-negotiable. It is. It just is what it is. So let's go ahead and open up to the psalm and we'll begin to look at this content. So we'll start with verse 1, uh, the declaration that is in this psalm. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So let's just stop there. The psalmist makes a declaration of what is the declaration. He's saying, to you, I'm going to lift up my eyes. And, and it's not just like I'm going to look physically upon you, but I'm setting my position to f- look at this one. He doesn't actually declare who it is in, in this immediate context. He just says, to you. And we know he's speaking of the God of Israel. He's speaking of God Almighty. He's saying, I'm going to fix my position upon you. My expectation is from you. It's not the idea that, okay, hey, I've been looking at this, and now, hey, let's look at you. What do you have? It's not that concept. It's the idea that I'm going to fix my actual position. I'm... Standing in this position, and I'm going to look to you for all my expectation. To you I lift up my eyes. And then he says, oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. And that's the idea. This one that he's talking about is what? Transcendent from this earthly reality. He's not looking to one who is constrained by the things that humanity is constrained. 
He is looking to the one who is above, beyond, who is transcendent to our reality. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So the psalmist says, I'm going to look, I'm going to fix my position on you. And, and I, I'm going to not, not look just in a certain direction. I'm going to look to you and you alone. My expectation is from you. And the crux of this psalm is really in verse 2. But I want to skip to the end of verse 2. So go to that last line there. It says, until he is gracious to us, or your Bible might say, until uh, you have mercy upon us, or something like that. I think a better, uh, gracious is just fits our mindset better. Because he's not asking like, hey, would you, I've sinned, I mean that, could be some of the context, but I sinned and, you know, have mercy upon me. It's more, will you have favor? Will you act, oh God? So I like this idea of gracious. But look at what he says here. So, number one, we see he's looking to the God who is transcendent to our reality. But I want you to notice what he says. He's in the, at that last line, he says, until he is gracious to us. Did you see the assurity of that? It's not like, I'm hoping you'll have grace. Like, maybe. Look, come on, guys. If we all get together and we all look up to God and we all call upon him, maybe he'll come and act. Boy, isn't that the way we Christians pray sometimes? We act like we have more compassion and more desire than God to save the lost. We act like we care about the sick on a different level than God Almighty does. Like we're going to somehow manipulate God and remind Him that there is a dark country on the other side of the world or a dark community uh, in our inner cities and we're going to kind of call God down to work with it. Come on. You don't know God. And nor do I. But that's the way we The psalmist is saying, I take the position to look to you. And I won't move. My expectation is of you. But you cannot do that unless you begin to know the nature of God. And that's what we see at the end of verse 2. Until. That's a surefire thing. Like, I'm taking this position because I know the nature of God. And I'm staying in this position until he acts. Because I know who he has declared himself to be. Friends, we're going to talk about the position of the people of God. But we cannot take that position unless first we know the nature of God. Do you know who your God is? Do you know whom he has declared himself to be? Let me give us a a clue that we might use in our life to see where we're at. If in any place in your life you think God is reactionary to you, think again. We, We don't know God the way He has declared Himself to be then. If I did this, therefore, oh, now he's doing that thing. 
He's reacting to me. I don't think you know God the way you think you do. That's where fear breeds its ugly talons and gets its roots deeper and deeper and deeper. The psalmist puts his position in an unalterable position because he knows the nature of God. I can be in this position because what? Until he has grace. Until he moves and shows his favor. Why? Because I know whom God has declared himself to be and he will act. Bottom line. Bottom line. What hope the Christian has. What hope. What joy. What confidence and a sure foundation. Let's back up now. And let's look at all of verse 2. So all this is in context of what? Who God is. So I skipped that section. I think it's easier to grab what's being said in verse 2 in this description of how the declaration is acted out if we understand that it's in the context of the transcendent reality of God. So the transcendent wisdom, power, glory, authority, omnipotence, His uh, sovereignty, His absolute rule over what He has created. But then the reality of His revealing who he is, his nature, that he, he is love. Nothing he does is unmotivated by love. Do you realize that? Nothing. The r- nothing. What did Jesus say in John 24 that was happening before creation ever was? What was going on before anything was? Jesus says that he, in John 17, 24, that he wants us to be with him, that we might enjoy, share, and see, know the love that the Father was loving the Son before the world was ever created. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this perfect, beautiful fellowship. God loving the Son, the Son responding to the Father in love, the, the Holy Spirit, this beautiful communion, this beautiful union and fellowship. Do we know who God is? It's one thing to say He's all-powerful, but if you don't understand His nature, you don't know how He uses His, oh yeah, right? That's an oops. And you'll walk around, and I'll walk around like most evangelical Christians today with this, he loves me, he loves me not. But if you know the nature of God and the grievous, even discipline, and I've had, I've had discipline, there can be delight, and there can be rejoicing because of him. Because I know he's only doing this for my good. What does Hebrews, I think it's 11, say? 
No, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says that he chastises us what? He disciplines not like an earthly father, but a father who wants us to partake in his holiness. Like that's his only motive. He's not reacting. He's not going to show me. He wants me to partake in his holy, holy, holiness. Do you know your God? Then you can fix your position. I'm not moving. Because I know my God will act, is acting, and has always acted. He's not changing. He will have grace. He will show favor. So let's look at the description now in verse 2. The psalmist says, Behold, as the eyes of servants, is what your Bible most likely says. Anybody have a Bible that says something different than servant? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> it's, it's funny and sad. What should be there? I actually, the second time I read it, I used those words. Slave. Should be slave. We, in Western culture, this is way back. This is not just now. It's heightened now. But even back when the King James was coming out, there's this heightened resistance of the idea of slavery. And so they chose to use servant. ESV, I remember I was watching a YouTube video where they were kind of just showing the scholars getting together. And, and, and this word, this, uh, well, maybe not this word exactly, but I think it might have been the New Testament one. Uh, they were trying to decide, how are we going to translate this thing that could be tra- and should be translated slave? And because of social struggles and, you know, uh, people's uh, mindset towards this, they chose servant for a, a vast majority of these times. But it should be slave. That changes this picture, doesn't it? So let's read that again. Behold, so... <laughs> God is telling us through the psalmist, stop, think, come on, look, this is what this, I'm not just saying I'm going to lift up my eyes to the Lord who is enthroned in the heavens, but I'm doing it this way. I want you to get how I'm doing it, how I'm fixing my position. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master. And then it's a parallel saying it another way. The same thing, it says, as the eyes of a maid, we might be able to say female slave to the hand of her mistress. Think of Hagar, Sarai's servant. She was a maid. We see that uh, uh, in Genesis 16. She had to obey her mistress. I mean, to the point where her mistress was able to give her to her husband, yeah, that doesn't sound like you're free. No, it sounds like you're a slave. Second uh, Kings five three, we see the uh, the young lady who I believe was taken as a slave to some. Uh, the, uh, th- oh, sorry, I'm losing what it, uh, Syria. I think, yeah, there we go. Uh, 
she was a slave, a prisoner. She couldn't go back. She was taken from her family. She was a slave. That's the same word when it refers to her as in this psalm. Same word with Hagar as in this psalm. As the eyes of a, I'm going to just say it this way, female slave looks to the hand of her mistress. Or as the eyes of a slave looks to the hand of their master. That's amazing. This idea of slave has a connotation of being what? Owned. Ruled over. In subjection to. At the will of another. And in our culture, we're all going, whoa, red flags, red flags, slow down. Man, we have done a disservice, I believe, in the Christian church because we have watered down the language. But you know, one of the most prominent, and some people would say the most prominent term used for Christians or to, to give us a grasp of what Christianity is, I haven't... I'm going to say one of the most, because I haven't verified this, but is slave. So I'm not going to say it's the most, but I think some say it is the most. Slave. No one can serve what? Two masters. Slave. It's not a mistake. It's not just a nice picture. It's reality. The psalmist takes the time to use the, these uh, synonymous uh, parallels to show us what this looks like. He could have just said, I'm going to lift up my eyes to you, you who are enthroned on high. Have mercy upon us and go into his plea. But he takes the time to say, and this is what that looks like. And I want each of us to grasp that this is what it looks like. Not for this, the psalmist. That's why I love that there's no like context. You can't say, oh, David just said that. No, no, no. This is what those who are coming to worship as they were reciting, meditate. These are part of that selection, right? To, to meditate on as they're coming into the presence of God to worship God. This is what they're supposed to meditate on. They're supposed to remember the reality of what it means to be the people of God. And that means to be the slave of God. To further this grasp, um, <coughs> find it in my notes here, there was, when we look at the idea of having mercy upon us, when he cries out for the plea, which we'll do in a second, or to have grace, guess what that has the idea of? It has the idea of bending down and uh, as, as a, an authority to someone who's under authority, to someone who is lower, I'll just read it here, properly to bend or stoop in kindness to a what? An inferior. To favor, to bestow causality, the idea even in what he's pleading is that I'm looking to someone who is superior to me to help me. That's the reality 
of the Christian. That's the reality, actually, of humanity. But only the Christian can take the position of slave with absolute joy. Absolute joy and see the beauty and the glory. Because not only does a slave, not only are they owned, not only are they looking to the will of another instead of their own, and at that will, right? But they also look to that master for provision, for security, for peace. And we know who our God is. That's why I started with it's all based on who God is. Not just that he's transcendent, not just that he's the omnipotent, sovereign, wise, but that we know his nature and his character and his will and desire towards us. And it doesn't change. So the Christian, can you imagine being one of the Israelites traveling up and meditating on this psalm? We're one of the people of God. We're one of the slaves of God. And we gladly take that position. He will provide for us. He will act. He will move. He is the God who is enthroned in the heavens above all. Friend, have you taken that joyful position? Have you afresh today embraced the reality that you are the slave of God? There is nothing more glorious. You know, in our world, everyone's looking for wholeness, right? Everyone is looking for completeness. Guess what? Before there was ever sin, there was incompleteness. You realize that? Adam and Eve were not sufficient within themselves to do anything. They were created to behold, to look to the eye, the hand, with their eyes, look to the hand of their master. That was what they were to do and to glory in, here it is, the wholeness and completeness and sufficiency of God. It was when they chose their own sufficiency that everything fell apart. You will be like God's comma, knowing good and evil. They chose that, and they lost the whole purpose of their being. Oh, did you hear what I just said? Purpose of their being. That's why you were created, to know, love, and serve God. And we only can do that from the joyful position of willing slave. And let me promise you something. You cannot get away from the blessings of your master. You could be running and saying, I I don't want any more blessings. I've had enough of all these blessings. It's overwhelming. I can't take any more happiness. And he's just going to bless you again. No, that's actually what it says in, in uh, the Torah when it speaks of the blessing and the curses. It says when you go out, you'll be blessed. When you come in, you'll be blessed. It'll overtake you is literally how it says it. But it also says that about curses when we choose our own sufficiency. Don't let what our community, our social constructs say about slavery, taint your understanding of what it means to be a Christian because the Bible uses us over and over and over again for what we are. And it is glorious. It is beautiful. Don't listen to what this world has to say about it because they're giving you a lie. 
Look at what God says. Yeah, fallen man does evil things, but God is not like man. He is the God who is enthroned in the heavens. And you and I can embrace and have all the completeness and sufficiency and wholeness we need. Now let's finish real quick here. The last verse, he has uh, this plea for God to move. The last two, he says, Be gracious to us, O Lord. And by the way, I should have said this earlier, but if you look at the Lord in verse 2 and the Lord in verse 3, it's the actual proper name of God. It's all caps, so it's the God of Israel. Yahweh God, excuse me. And so he's asking him to be gracious, to, to stoop down to an inferior and bless, give us favor. So be gracious to us, O Lord, proper name of God. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. That's the idea of shame. This is an interesting thing. Verse 4 says, our soul is great, so it's a parallel again, our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease, and he's going to say it another way, and with the contempt of the proud. Right? So there are people who, and what I don't want you to do is look at this verse 4 and say, oh, there's people who are bothering them and they're asking God to take care of the people. That's not at all what's being said. We have no indication that's what's being said. What's being said for clear, in a clarity is that there are people who are scoffing at them, taking the position of being the slave of God and not looking to anyone else or anything else for sufficiency. That's what's happening. And they're saying, God, move. We're, we're, gonna, we're not going to stop looking. Move so they see. They're scoffing. They're filling us with shame. We're full of the shame. And these people who are scoffing, by the way, is to speak contempt contentiously of another. So that's what's happening, right? They're speaking, they're shaming the people of God, and this could be, by the way, people in Israel themselves, depending on what it's written, what it looks like. It could be. It could be other Israelites. We don't know. So I love it. It just causes us to back up and say, what's the ultimate reality here? The ultimate reality is that there are those, and by the way, look at the last word, and with the contempt of the proud, those who take the position of not, what is pride? Pride is not being the slave of God. Not bending my knee and saying, you are sufficiency, you are reality itself, not me. I submit and rely on you. So, ultimately, there are these people who take the opposite position of what the psalm, the psalmist, and notice it starts with a singular, but it, the rest of it ends with a plural, speaking of all the people of God. And they, these people are scoffing. They're saying your God is not enough. He will not be faithful. He will not come through. And the psalmist says, here's my position. I will not move from the reality of being the joyful slave of God. I'm going to keep looking to the one who I know is sufficient. His wholeness, his completeness. And the plea then is, move so they see. Doesn't this remind you of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Israel? Doesn't this remind you of Joseph? in the, the pit? Doesn't this remind you of David running from his son Absalom or running from Saul? Because it's an eternal truth. Absalom, no! I'm not going to bow to the slavery of God. Saul, no! I'm not going to give up my position as king and, and let David take over. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to submit a slave to God. I'm going to do my own thing. 
And we can go on and on through every era of Jewish history. Oh, and we can go right into ours. Where are you going to look? What's your position? What's your position? Amen. And in Christ, right, we get to be the joyful, willing, most happy slaves of God. And that's a better freedom. Period. That's a better freedom. Don't listen to this world. Choose the better freedom. And that's being the slave of your creator who loves you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we we can be the joyful slaves of God. I don't have to reach in for my own sufficiency anymore. I don't have to produce what I cannot produce, but I can receive the complete sufficiency of God in Christ through your Holy Spirit in our union with Him. And we have all we need being the joyful slaves of Christ. I pray your church would rise up again and be the church in our generation and show this world what it means to be the joyful slaves together. We, we being the joyful slaves together of Christ. It's no more time for a bunch of individuals running around doing their own stuff. But those who as the body look to you. I thank you in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.